If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. It is the first Sunday after Epiphany after the wise men did in fact ask for directions and then, um, but then gave gifts that no baby could possibly use. Um, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are not helpful. Diapers, blankets, a teething ring, guys, come on, that would be helpful. Maybe a breast pump, maybe <laughs> certificates that promise future babysitting. I don't know. But myrrh? Myrrh is an expensive spice used for making perfume. It's mentioned in the erotic poetry of the Song of Solomon. This is a baby. It makes you wonder if Mary is not the first woman in the world to think, regifting. But here's the really important news this morning. Today is also called in the lectionary cycle, the Baptism of Christ Sunday. Now I know that you already knew this. I know that when you got up this morning, we're trying to decide, come to church, don't come to church, hustle the kids around, not pass the morning uh, talk shows, don't watch them, snuggle up with the New York Times. You said to yourself, self, it is after all, Baptism of Christ Sunday, <laughs> so I know where I need to be. But seriously, 
Baptism is a big deal in the world of church, especially in Oklahoma. And in the church I grew up in, we had these debates, lots of them about the right way to be baptized and what happens to you if you don't do it right, correctly. And correctly, of course, meant the way we did it, by full immersion in water with the right words spoken and by a minister who was a man, of course, and hopefully strong enough to pull you back up out of the water after dunking you under. That's really one of the dark nightmares of the ministry is that you will <laughs> baptize a large person and leave them under. <laughs> I'm just saying. But for us, no sprinkling or dry cleaning. You're going to go all the way under. And so there were a lot of things to worry about and not worry about, mostly what to do if you get water up your nose. As far as we know, Jesus wasn't worried about any of those things. He does get baptized, however, in all four Gospels, but in Luke's gospel and in John's gospel, not necessarily by John the Baptist. And we'll come back to this. First, the account we read this morning from Luke drove Fred Craddock crazy because in it, Jesus is just part of the crowd. He does not glow in the dark or get to go to the front of the line. In Luke, it just says, quote, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, also? Jesus also? Come on, surely this is a mistake. Luke was looking at Mark's gospel when he wrote his gospel, and in Mark's account, it feels like Jesus and John were the only two people standing in the Jordan River. But in Luke, there are all these other people and Jesus also. In Matthew, when Jesus is spotted in the line, John the Baptist says, whoa, 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 I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Not in Luke. In Luke, it's just Jesus also. So the church got nervous about this later and went right to work cleaning up this unsurprising oversight. One church father wrote that when Jesus was baptized, there was actually a bright light from heaven that shone on the surface of the water. Another said that fire had spontaneously erupted and spread across the surface of the Jordan from one end to the other. Now that's more like it. Come on, this is Jesus. Craddock thinks that perhaps John should have said, I'm not going to baptize you with all the rest of them. Stand over here to the side, Jesus, and after I'm done with all these regular sinners, you and I can have a, a private ceremony. Otherwise, you're just another body in the line. And when the time comes, all I'm going to say to you is, next. Lines, we don't like them. My father said to me once, Robin, after I got out of the army, I never wanted to stand in another line. Of course, for one thing, we use lines to rank the importance of people, do we not? Regular long lines are for regular people, like those folks at the airport who are so ordinary, they don't even have TSA pre-board. And they, they have to take their shoes off and stand in that long line. When I get a ticket, one of the first things I do is always look to see if I'm TSA pre. And if I am, I feel very special. I never pay for it, of course. I don't know how I get it, because I'm too cheap. Sometimes I just get it, and I have to admit, I like it. I like standing in the short line. And then there are those first class and business class passengers, which I'm also never one of, because I'm too cheap. 
who do get to go on the plane first and then they settle into those big wide seats and they avoid eye contact with the rest of us <laughs> as we board the plane and move past them like a herd of cows. They're already drinking a glass of wine as the economy groundlings pass uncomfortably close and they look away. Lines, who needs them? But Luke says Jesus is just in line. And that means all John would say when he saw him was, next. Luke says Jesus was about 30. Now to put that in context, that is five years younger than Lori. Luke says the poor were there and the rich were there and Jesus was there. They're all in the same line. Luke likes to throw rich and poor together, orphans and widows together with rich young rulers and tax collectors because Luke sees the empowered poor as the primary symbol of the kingdom of God. We will know that the kingdom has come, Mr. President, when the poor are no longer invisible. Soldiers were in that line also, their spears still tipped with blood. They had all the power, so why are they standing in line? Today, active duty military get to board the plane first, so why did Roman soldiers in the time of Jesus not just go to the head of the line for baptism? Who's gonna argue with them? Tax collectors were also in the line, those crooks, the coins they had stolen from your mother still jingling in their pockets. There are even religious professionals in the line, clergy to use a modern term. Why would the clergy get in that line? Did they forget about their own baptism? It can happen, you know. Clergy can forget their own baptism. Another meeting, another bid to fix the roof, another funeral eulogy to write, another sermon to worry about, and gradually we forget those moments when we were called to do this work in the first place. This space we have, these candles, your faces, that music we just heard, it can all grow so familiar that we suddenly fail to see or to hear as if for the first time. It's interesting to me to think about how baptism levels the playing field. Soldiers have to take off all of their armor. Tax collectors have to untie their money belt. Clergy have to take off their collar and get into something, I don't know, like a hospital gown. Does this thing have like a back to it? Even the, even the rich have to take off their Gucci loafers, their Rolex watches, their gold cufflinks and wade into that muddy water like all those other economy class people that their walled neighborhoods are meant to keep out. By the way, I went to visit a friend once who lives in a walled neighborhood. I couldn't get the gate to open I was probably punching in the wrong code. So I called him up, I said, hey, I can't get in. Who is this? He replied, I said, it's me, Robin, the riffraff. I, I, I can't get in, what does that mean? He laughed and said, it means the system is working. <laughs> that wall was built to keep people like you out. Baptism, it levels the playing field. No valet service down by the river, no luxury skyboxes, no special lounges in the waiting area called the Ambassadors Club, the Admirals Club, the Gold Club, the Platinum Club, whatever. You know, basically the way the world upgrades people with money. 
and then quaffed people smile and pretend to like you hoping for a big tip. Not so much so down by the Jordan River. There were just all those people who wanted to do something to mark a moment in their lives, to turn around, to leave their past behind. They wanted to come clean, if you will. It can be very powerful. In baptism by immersion, one is held under the water that represented the abode of chaos for the Jews, and where if you're left under too long, you will drown, breath and water being mutually exclusive, and then you are raised up out of that darkness and chaos into the light where you take your first breath as a new creature and leave behind everything you hated about your old self, washed clean of your sins, and ready to start your life over again. That's powerful. It's a powerful thing for someone to wish to reset their relationship to God and to neighbor. As a ritual, baptism can be very powerful and important. The problem is that like communion, we start telling people that it's a gatekeeper. You have to do it to be saved. Oklahoma kids are asked in school all the time, have you been baptized? And then if the answer is, well, no, I, we don't go to church or we don't go to a church that baptizes people, the kids will say, well, you're, you're gonna go to hell if you die. Really? That's odd considering that we have no record that Jesus himself ever baptized anyone, not even his own disciples. Did they all go to hell when they died? This is why liberals need to know the Bible. So many of the things that the church has to offer the world that are powerful and countercultural, like communion and baptism, become symbols of exclusiveness instead of moments of revelation, covenant, and community. I've actually gotten calls from strangers who want to come to church some Sunday to have their kids baptized. I don't know who they are. I say, well, no one's going to know you. Yes, I know, I know that. But they, you know, just thought they would come to church and if they were gonna go to any church, boy, it would be Mayflower. That sort of butters me up. <laughs> so if you don't mind, they say, Reverend, we just like to come and have the kids done. I said, oh, you mean in case there's something to it? Have them done? <laughs> Sounds like biscuits coming out of the oven. <laughs> but I get it. This is what philosophers call Pascal's wager. It is better to believe even if it ends up making no difference than not to believe only to learn later that it does. We will never know why Jesus got in that line. But when the gospel writers look back to write the story of his life and to encourage communities founded in his name, they did make an important distinction between John the Baptist and Jesus. John said, I baptize you with water, but one who's more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Whoa. Here is where we have a hard time understanding the text because we are not farmers living in first century Palestine. 
Centuries later, when heretics were burned at the stake, we tended to read this interpretation of fire as a punishment back into the text. But the image of winnowing is lost on modern folk. Winnowing forks were used to toss the grain of the harvest high into the air, where the wind would separate and blow away the chaff, leaving only the grain to fall to the ground. We read this now, you know, as sorting out good people from bad people, and then kids have these Baptist nightmares of a big, burly farmer god throwing people into the air with a pitchfork, then burning alive the ones who come back down onto the wrong pile. I've heard those sermons. John may have liked the idea of separation, turn or burn, but the work of the Spirit, or wind in Greek as it really is used here, is not about anyone being destroyed by fire, but about the need we all have to separate the good and the bad within ourselves. All of us are a combination of wheat and chaff. All of us need to let go of what is destroying us, to let it blow away in the wind. There is not a single person in this room who does not know this or who has not wondered, why do I do the things I do that are not what I ought to do, not what I'm called to do, not what those I love need me to do? Jesus is promising to take the stuff of our lives and toss it up into the air, the things we think are important, the things we covet, the things we try to control, the ways in which we deceive and manipulate and fail to give the benefit of the doubt, they'll blow away and be destroyed. The image of fire may be disturbing to us because we connect it with hell, but to this day, fields are often burned to get them ready to plant. People show up in church in part because they're tired of waking up on Sunday morning and looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, that's not me. I was made for more than this. Of course, some of Jesus' followers would have preferred to interpret this winnowing metaphor as a sign of chosenness. The wheat is the Jews, the chaff is the Gentiles. We get it. The only problem with this, of course, is that Jesus does not act like Gentiles are not worth saving. To the contrary, he repeatedly goes to the other side, annoying his own disciples with this boundary-breaking ministry to every single other. One can almost hear his disciples grumbling, well, if you just wouldn't spend so much time with the, you know, with the chaff, you might be more useful to the people of the grain, the wheat people. So, you know, really, Jesus, be a good politician. Keep your message focused on your base. And by the way, since I promised to come back to this, and otherwise the sermon title makes no sense, the lectionary leaves out a couple of verses, which we did read this morning, starting at verse 18, I guess because they considered it unimportant. But it says this, So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who'd been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Then the very next passage is the baptism of Jesus, supposedly by John, who is actually 
if you're reading chronologically, now in prison. So who really baptized Jesus that day? Isn't that interesting to think about? Was it someone John had asked to step in for him, like a substitute teacher? Wouldn't that be weird that the person who really baptized Jesus was not John, but was someone whose name we will never know, a forgotten one? Same thing in the last Gospel of John. We don't know who baptizes Jesus in John's Gospel. Just somebody does. He gets baptized. So it's obvious that as the church wanted or needed to be close to John in the early years, it was, but as it moved toward a divorce from Judaism, John's credentials faded. Well, I know who baptized me. My father baptized me. I was 15 because in the Church of Christ, we believed in something called an age of accountability baptism which I don't know what that means for sure, but I think you're supposed to wait until you're old enough to be completely confused by what is happening, (laughs) but also too proud to ask anyone to help you understand it. One of my Church of Christ friends said, no, the age of accountability is just when you get to the point where all you can think about in the middle of the night is will I go to hell if I die? That's sad. So there I was at Riverside Church in Wichita, Kansas, my father in hip waders, I was in some sort of baptismal gown holding a handkerchief that I was to place over my mouth at just the moment of submersion. Behind me on the wall was that painting that adorns every baptistry in the world, a blue sky, white cloud, shaft of light coming down, along with a white dove, the dove of the Holy Spirit. And what I remember is that when I was lifted up out of the water, kind of sputtering and self-conscious, the congregation applauded and said amen. These people never said amen. There was hope for Robin after all. (laughs) And what was most memorable, however, about being baptized at 15 was not the act itself. I'm still trying to figure that out. It was the letters I started getting from complete strangers in the weeks and months that followed. My father had put the notice of my baptism in the church bulletin and it was published then by a national newspaper of the denomination, the son of Robert Myers has been baptized. And there was great rejoicing. And then these letters started coming to my house addressed not to my father, but to me, from people I had never heard of, welcoming me into the fold as one of the beloved. Who, me? Did they not know me? I once got caught shoplifting from a local drugstore in the sixth grade because one of my hoodlum friends dared me to do it. He also gave me a vintage collection of old Playboy magazines, which I coveted in the way only a teenage boy can. But I couldn't keep them in the parsonage. Somebody might find them, so I hid them in my father's church and he found them one day. Me, beloved? It reminds me one day of a, of a time we, we baptized a kid in here one time not long ago, young child, not a baby, by sprinkling, of course. And that afternoon, as he was riding home with his proud parents, he, bur- he suddenly burst into tears. 
And when his parents asked what on earth was wrong, he sniffed out the answer. That minister who baptized me said I would be brought up in a Christian home. But I want to stay with you guys. <laughs> so, it really doesn't matter whether you dunk, sprinkle, or dry clean. What matters is rituals in the church are supposed to make people feel loved, included, valuable, redeemable, remarkable, forgiven. What's more, that you can always start over anytime, anywhere, with any kind of ritual you want. I mean, that can happen in the baptistry or at the communion table where our kids are welcome or in the pulpit on Youth Sundays where they try their hand at preaching or in any of the myriad ways in which this community says to our children, you are the beloved. And not just you, but every single other. In the line after church, one thing Lori and I can always expect is that kids will be waiting patiently, clutching something to show us that they made in Sunday school. Something that shows us that they understood the lesson, something they colored or glued together, especially if it has glitter, some artifact of the morning light in this place. Sometimes they want to give it to us to keep. They want to leave it with us as a gift just to make sure that we know that the heavens had opened and that the Holy Spirit had in fact descended on them. And a voice had come from heaven speaking to them, saying, you are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. Do you know what that changes? Do you know what that changes? Everything. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m., and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.